Boy, have we got a lot to cover on today's episode. I am so excited to share this one. Of course, before we get started, I want to give a shout out to Helmbot. Helmbot is always working to improve its UX and make sure that it's super efficient for you. And they just made, well, I should say they, they did this about a month ago, but they made an improvement where you can just with a couple presses of your keys on your keyboard, go into dark mode. <laughs> which is one of my favorite things on my cell phone. And when everything is just so chill and mellow at the float shop, I love to turn on dark mode on Helmbot and it just doesn't blast into my retinas anymore. It seems like such a small thing, but it makes such a big difference. And I love that they did it. Anyway, Helmbot does so much more than just dark mode. You probably know all the things that Helmbot does, but obviously it's going to do scheduling for your customers, scheduling for your employees, clocking in, clocking out, uh, all of your room measurements, all your metrics and tasks, generating tasks for everything that goes on at your shop. It is fantastic. I can't recommend it enough. Don't take my word for it, though. Just go ahead and schedule your own appointment uh, with Helmbot. Get a free tour. Make sure it's a good fit for you. Helmbot.com is where you want to go. And let's get started with the show. Welcome back to another episode of Art of the Float, where floaters thrive. I am Dylan. I'm one of your co-hosts, and I have been to Maui. And what's one of the little small ones that just have a few people that uh, hang out there? Gosh, it was uh, one of the most beautiful uh, anyway, I've ever been on. But anyway, I've been to I've Molokai. What's that? No, I guess a little bit bigger, a little more <laughs> between. Uh, and that's my favorite thing. I love the guest to talk before the introduction. So yeah, don't you ever s- change a thing. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I've been to Hawaii. It's one of my favorite places I've ever been to. Who is that mysterious voice? Um, mm-hmm. My name is Gloria Morris, and I am with Float60. Uh, I've been to Hawaii, and it's been a while, but I am really looking forward to going back. But I am often on island time. <laughs> This is Drew from New Hampshire Float, and although I have never been to Hawaii, one of my favorite songs is that Ziggy Marley song, On a Beach in Hawaii. So I dream about it often and hope to do that someday. And this is Kim Hannon. I own Sukino Float Center in Salt Cave in Southern Indiana with my husband. And I have not been to Hawaii, though a friend work, a friend lives there. We used to work together, and uh, she's invited me to come anytime. So I really need to make that happen. Uh, I would agree with that. Well, let's go ahead and bring on our guest here tonight. We're very excited to bring on Dr. Justin Feinstein. Welcome, welcome to the Whee! podcast. Aloha. Aloha. <laughs> I live in Hawaii. <laughs> what? It's, quite, it's what? quite different than Oklahoma, I can tell you that. Yeah. I, the oh scenery looks a little bit yeah. different. Uh, one of my favorite things about Oklahoma, I'm sure I've probably even said it on the podcast before, was you were really selling Oklahoma uh, with they they got a zamba or a jamba juice. They got a jamba juice, Dylan. <laughs> they they got culture. They got it all. Okay, okay, it's true. They did. We we went there every day. <laughs> um, so let's let's back it up here a little bit. I love that you're in Hawaii. I'm so excited that you're in Hawaii. But let's turn turn the wheels back a little bit and talk about. Um, Liber at the last float conference, you made a big announcement. 
And I just want to retread a lot of that because I think there is, I don't think everybody knows what's going on. And I'm sure there are a lot of questions. Um, and so I'd like to talk about um, kind of the what's going on with Liber and, and what's going on with you as a, as a person as well. No, I mean, absolutely. I, I miss Liber. Liber, I always referred to Liber as, as the field of dreams. Hmm. You know, when I moved there, I think it was, you know, basically seven and a half years ago. Um, you know, it, wow. it's this really beautiful institute in the middle of Tulsa, Oklahoma, that is about trying to do innovative science and, and really try to tackle um, issues that are near and dear to my heart, which revolve around how to help people improve their mental health. So it was very focused on that. And you have a collection of just really world-renowned scientists there who are doing groundbreaking research. And, you know, Liber um, is where the Flow Clinic and Research Center is based out of. So I still have a lot of colleagues there. I have good friends there. I have great memories there. And, you know, right now where I'm currently living is where my family lives. My, my, when I moved to Tulsa from California, my family moved to Maui. And that's what brought me out here. Um, the pandemic was, was sort of a, a trial by fire moment, if you will, where I decided to make a change that was really necessary for my own kids. And I'm sure any parent who's lived through this pandemic could, could resonate. But, you know, when my kids came home in March from school, and my wife was forced to sort of homeschool all by herself, I realized I needed to step up to the plate. <laughs> and I have a, a six-year-old and a seven-year-old. And they're like sponges at this age. It's incredible what their brain is capable of doing. And I needed to focus on them. I needed to be able to provide an environment for them where they could be near family, where they could be learning every day and Basically, that's what I've been doing the past few months is, is what the kids refer to as daddy school. <laughs> I've been trying to teach them every day and um, help, help out my family. I get to see my, my parents. The kids get to see their grandparents every day. And it's just a much more conducive environment for the family. So it, it was really one of the hardest decisions I've ever had to make in life to, to leave Tulsa and to leave Liber. But it was one ultimately done for the sake of my family. And, and I think it was the right decision, honestly, given the pandemic. It, it's just such a, a crazy once in a hundred year type situation. And I needed to step up to the plate. But, you know, Liber still exists, the Laureate Institute for Brain Research. It's still doing great research. And let's talk about that a little bit, because all the float studies that we were doing continue to this day under the directorship of one of my closest friends and colleagues, Dr. Saeb Khalsa. And, and I'd love to chat some more about that if you guys are okay with that. Yeah, <laughs> I think we're curious. I, I just want to clarify real quick. At the beginning, you said that your family moved to Hawaii. That was your parents moved to Hawaii. Um, and, and, and now you've caught up with them in, in Hawaii. That's right. Yeah, no, I... They basically sold uh, my childhood home in, in Irvine, California, and they, they decided to move to warmer waters. Most people don't realize this, but Southern California, the Pacific Ocean, is freezing. Hmm. And my mom just loves to swim. She loves to float. 
and she needs it every day. And she was not going to be capable of doing that in the freezing waters of, of the California Pacific. So it was really for them a, a, a clear lifestyle choice. So they moved to Maui where you have really nice warm water year round. And every day my mom's out there swimming and floating. Wow. Oh my gosh. That sounds incredible. Thank you. Uh, going back to, to Liber. Yeah. Um, let's talk about, um, well, I mean, what does it mean? What did it mean to you? And what did it mean to Liber when you decided I'm going to move to Hawaii with my family? You know, you're in the middle of the pandemic. My understanding of talking to you off the air is that the research continued. So it's not like this has just been a big pause. Um, so what did that mean for Liber and for you? It was really, you know, I think a, a sort of crossroads moment in life where I had to make a very difficult choice. I, you know, ultimately did not want to to leave Liber, but my hand was forced. And, you know, what was most important for me, and if there's any silver lining to any of this, is that Dr. Saib Khalsa is now the director of the Flow Clinic and Research Center. To me, this transition to, to Dr. Kalsa was critical because he's been doing float research now since I've arrived at Liber. Hmm. And he hmm. actually uh, has been publishing on some of that float research. There was a study that just came out a few months ago on one of the first ever studies with floating and anorexia nervosa. Hmm. And he's currently doing an inpatient study, the first inpatient study ever done with floating on mostly adolescent women who are suffering from anorexia. And so it was a very natural transition for him to take over. Saib and I have been doing neuroscience research since graduate school at the University of Iowa. And we're both interested in the same questions, which revolve around this notion of interoception. How does the brain feel and interpret the internal body? And all of the the, the, the studies that we had going on, all of those questions that are near and dear to our heart continue forward. Um, that was really what was most important to me when, when I was deciding to, to make this choice to leave libraries. I did not want to see the float research come to a halt. And it's not. And I speak to Saib every week. And um, the studies continue forward. Uh, Raminta Wilson, who's the research assistant, in the laboratory is continuing to recruit patients, even in the midst of COVID. And I can tell you, this is not trivial. These are patients with severe anxiety who pre-pandemic had trouble leaving their house. And now not only are they having to leave their house during the pandemic, but before every single float session, they're getting a COVID test, a nasal swab. And they're agreeing to do it to make sure that everyone's safe and everyone in the lab is safe. But it's just an extra precaution that was necessary to even do research in the age of COVID. And so all the clinical trials that we have going on are continuing. We, we hope that we'll have recruitment done by the end of the year, but we'll have to keep a close eye on that and see how it goes. And... You know, to me, the, the fact that all of the studies we have going on, um, all of the research, the data analysis, the publications, all of that is continuing forward. I'm in close connection and collaboration with everyone there. And to me, that is the, the biggest silver lining to all of this is 
there was a smooth transition. Mm -hmm. There was nothing abrupt about this. This was, you know, something that started taking place over the summer of last year. And I didn't actually leave until the fall. Got it. And I want to make sure that Kim, Gloria, Drew, you guys are more than welcome to ask questions and everything. I, I know I know you have them. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to ask a question uh, related to COVID before you brought that up. So thank you for that. But, um, you know, given everybody's heightened state of anxiety and depression and just the change of life, how do you see floating, uh, fitting into the future in terms of treatment for you know, those conditions? And do you see any expanse, expansion to what LIBOR is doing outside in the academic arenas or anywhere else? Yeah, I mean, addressing that first question, I gave a TED talk about a year ago. Dylan was actually at the talk. It was in, it was in Oregon, in Salem, Oregon. And this was pre-pandemic. This was basically January of 2020. And the whole talk was about how floating could be an antidote to modern times and how much of our lives are consumed by the smartphone, by the internet, by all of this constant connectivity and how floating in many ways is the ultimate form of disconnection. And little did we know at the time, in a few months, all of us were going to be sort of just isolated at home living on our smartphones, checking the news all the time, being constantly connected to this isolated COVID world. And if I had to, you know, uh, uh, sort of make a guess back then, I would have no idea. But if anything, that TED Talk is more relevant now than ever because essentially we're all constantly connected and we really do need floating now more than ever. The research that we were doing at LIBOR and continue to do was all about anxiety and stress, right? And we showed without any doubt that floating in a very immediate fashion could reduce levels of stress and anxiety in a profound way. There's no doubt. And these were in people who were critically and severely suffering from stress and anxiety. These weren't just average people. Now take COVID, where the average ordinary person is suddenly inundated with stress and anxiety in a way that they've never been used to their entire life. This is the moment for floating. This is the moment for people to actually come out of their house, out of their shells, and get into a float tank and finally recognize how effective this is at reducing their stress and anxiety. And so, you know, to me, this is an exciting moment for the whole industry of floating. We are providing an important, an important antidote to what has become an extremely stressful time in human evolution. And I, I'm, you know, I'm happy, so happy that we we're able to get a lot of that research accomplished pre-pandemic to demonstrate that this is a very effective route for the reduction of stress and anxiety. So the second part to that question, and thank you for all of that, um, is do you see any new bursts of energy in flotation research that may come from either yourself or outside of LIBOR? You know, is there any other 
academic body that had started to pick up momentum with research or did you see it kind of die down? I'm just curious to see if those reasons you just described now, you know, kind of set the pace for something much more intensive in terms of research and, and you know, reporting. You know, absolutely. I think one of the things to recognize about the current clinical trials at LIBOR is they're a follow-up to all of our initial research. So our initial studies and the publications that have come out in both the anxiety disorders, depression, and anorexia nervosa have all been about what are the short-term effects of floating in terms of reducing the symptoms, improving people's mental health. And, you know, obviously we found tremendous benefit, but the natural follow-up question to that is what are the long-term effects of repeated floating? You know, this is something that hasn't really been examined before. So if you have somebody with anxiety coming in multiple times over the course of weeks and months, how long do the benefits sustain? How long do they persevere? And so we're looking at things a few months out all the way up to six months or a year post-float and trying to figure out how long do they last. And that's why these clinical trials take so long to complete. You have to do longitudinal follow-up. So those studies are ongoing, and, and we're hopefully have the data over the course of the next year or two. There's also research happening internationally. There's, there's a great researcher in Germany named Florian Beissner, who has um, ongoing studies about floating in chronic pain patients. And he's also trying to understand, once again, how long do the effects last post-float? So if you have someone come in multiple times, is the pain reduced a month later, six months later, and so forth. So I do see this research continuing and really evolving over time towards understanding not just the short-term benefits of floating, which are very clear, but also the long-term benefits. Can you talk to us about, um, well, there's a lot I want to talk about. How about, uh, real quick, just a little bit more of a personal question, if you don't mind. Um, how difficult was it to make that choice? Um, I know you said your your hand was forced, but I mean, stepping away from all this, I know that you aren't simply an academic doing this research for, uh, it, you are passionate about it. You, you see and believe in the benefits of floating. So I know this personally motivates you to be doing this research. So I'm curious, how difficult was that to step away from for you? It, it was extremely difficult. I've been in academia my entire life. I've never not been associated with a university or some academic department. And, you know, I have very close friends and colleagues at the Laureate Institute. And so leaving them and leaving this research behind was, was extremely difficult. Um, you know, for, for me, and something I'm, I'm sure we'll discuss on, on this podcast, is I didn't feel like I was leaving floating. If anything, what I'm doing right now in Hawaii is I'm doubling down on floating. I, I really believe that with all my heart, that I have a lot of plans, I have a lot of vision for the future of floating and float research. And I think there's a lot of things I could do here um, that would be very important and, and would in many ways advance the field of floating. And so I'd like to discuss some of that later on in the podcast, but I think 
when I made that decision ultimately to leave Liber, it's important that people recognize it wasn't me leaving floating at hmm. all. This, this, this was really me sort of saying, I need to take a pause, focus on my family. And once things sort of get reinvigorated, I'm going to be full steam ahead on enacting all of these really important visions I have for the float industry. Because I think not being attached to academia for the first time in my life gives me some freedom to pursue things that I could have never done under the context of an academic institution. And so I'm excited about that potential. That's, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Uh, the, on the freedom? I, on the freedom? I, I, I can. I, I, um, I absolutely can. And, you know, I, I heard another question coming up, but the, you know, I think that's a deeper conversation because there's really a couple different directions I, I want to take this. Okay, we, we, we'll get back to that. I, I know Drew wants to ask a question. I know Gloria does. Yeah, well, I'll jump in, Drew. you got to beat me to the punch if you want to. <laughs> but um, so I'm so glad that you described that in more detail because I, I have to tell you, when we were delivered the news of your decision to leave at the float conference. Um, I think so many people did, I, I think people were just kind of taken aback and they didn't know what to do with the information. And there were more questions than answers and it wasn't the right like forum to really get to what you just described. So super grateful that you're sharing that on our podcast, but people are so attached to the notion that you represent the fight for what we do, right? And so there, there was a hole. I mean, I'm just being completely transparent with you. Like, I think people walked away like depressed after hearing that you were leaving and they were like, oh my gosh, is this the beginning of the end, right? Is there anybody to kind of champion this? And I think people know about the other amazing research at, at Liber that's going on, but you were really the face and the champion and the man, right? I mean, there's a freaking t-shirt made after you that I have, <laughs> um, feeling fine. So, you know, I just, I'm so glad you addressed that and it's going to be really uh, invigorating for the industry to hear you say these things about the power of floating because Justin, as you know, so many float centers are not going to be able to reopen and so many float centers have already closed and some of those People, you know, just didn't have a choice because of the financial situation that uh, was bestowed upon them. But, you know, you're giving us hope. You're giving us uh, a light to, you know, just kind of understand there is championing going on, whether it is at LIBOR with all the folks that are doing the, the work or the projects that you're going to talk about. So I'm going to turn it over to Drew because I know you have more questions, Drew, but I can't wait to hear about what you're doing now. Drew's going to wait till a little bit later okay. to ask his questions. Damn, Drew. Served up the and, volley. And we're talking on the side. So we're talking on the side. So I, I got mine coming up later. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think it's totally okay to, to start um, talking about it. Let, let's, uh, I think we're going to bounce around quite a bit. There's a lot to cover, right? 
Oh my gosh, I don't even know where to take a pause here, but we do need to just take a quick break here. I want to thank Isopod for supporting the show, making sure that we can have amazing guests like Justin on. And I want to talk about Isopod. We own two Isopod float tanks at the float shop now. Uh, We got one and absolutely fell in love with it. I mean, perhaps more than we fell in love with it, our customers fell in love with it. It is, I think, one of the most accessible-looking float tanks where when somebody sees it, they just have this sigh of relief, this, oh, okay, yes, I can do this. Um, So that we even got a second isopod uh, when we replaced our old floatarium, um, which now has a nice home privately. We replaced it with an isopod. We were sure to because... um, They're easy to use, they're easy with maintenance, whether it's a filter change um, or the remote control down at our front desk. But again, for me, it's just worth everything for our customers' reactions to these float tanks. I highly, highly, highly recommend looking into Isopod. It's i-sopod, i-sopod.com, and get in contact with these guys. Um, Figure out how we can work with your floor plan. Uh, One of the things we did is with some smaller rooms, we're able to make some fairly tight turns with the pipes that go out the back of the float tank into the main housing unit where the filtration system and motherboard are. So it works out very well for us. So I highly recommend, again, i-sopod.com. Check it out. Get in contact. Tell them Art of the Float sent you. And let's jump back into the show. You know, how did you feel after the flow conference? How did you feel? You gave a presentation. You had the breakout room afterwards. You know, how did you walk away feeling? It, it was hard. You know, that was right at the moment where I was beginning the transition away from LIBOR. I was still at LIBOR at the time. And, you know, that, that's a very difficult, bittersweet moment. So I, I'm not surprised that people felt the same way I was feeling. Now that I'm here and have a little more perspective and a little bit more um, sort of ability. A tan. To... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, a little bit of ability to step back from sort of being in, in, in the mud, if you will, of, of transitioning. Um, I, I feel a lot better about the choice and I feel a lot more upbeat about the, the future. You know, the, one of the things I'm, I want to talk about, and, and we should get into this a little bit, is this idea of a float research collective. This is something I, I've been dreaming about for years now. I think, Dylan, you may have remembered me giving a talk at the RISE float conference right. a few years ago. In 2019 at Denver, if you, if you go back and watch that talk, the entire first part of the talk was about the Float Research Collective. And I think now is actually the moment where I could enact that vision and really take the, the what I'm calling the FRC to the next level. And, um, you know, that's exciting. But it was, you know, it was, it was definitely hard to relay that, that news to the community during the conference. I had to do it. I didn't want to keep it a secret. It would have come out some way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, the band-aid has been pulled off. <laughs> so well, let's talk about the float. Oh, sorry. Go, so sorry, you, you socialized this concept in 2019. Was that the conference where I almost passed out because I spoke after you? <laughs> I think that was maybe <laughs> a few years before that. I can't remember. Was I feel it? like our wasn't it in Portland yeah. when that happened? I, you know what? I think yes. it was. Yeah. I think it was Portland, Portland 18. 18. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good because I was going to say, I don't remember 
hearing about that. And it could be because I was in some kind of body shock or having an out-of-body experience. But so you mentioned it in 2019. What what were you able to mention? And I guess one of the questions I have is what are the types of things you can do now that you can't do in academia? And what are the reasons? You know, I'm sure there's there's many that have to do with the affiliations of the university and you don't have the same freedom, but what are those restraints? You know, I think I could be a, a much bigger advocate for the float industry. I, you know, I've over the past, um, you know, decade really, since I've, I've started getting involved in, in the industry and doing float research, I've seen this tremendous growth. I, I was talking to uh, friends of mine who are part of flotation locations and we went from around you know, 70 or 80 float centers in the country back in um, 2012, all the way to about uh, um, 900 float centers internationally as of this past year. And now, how many of those are still in business? I don't know. I don't think they know. But it's just this order of magnitude of growth that we've witnessed over the past decade. And... When you do science, when you do research in academia, you, you have to sort of maintain a very clear equipoise where you're not necessarily advocating for or against the research or the science or the intervention. You're just trying to study it in its purest form. Now that I'm not knee-deep in that science and research on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm able to step back a little bit. I'm able to advocate for what I know based off of the data we've already collected on the data we've already published, that this is really helpful treatment for so many people. I'm not saying that floating is a magical cure in any way, shape or form, but it's extremely beneficial for those who are suffering from things like stress, anxiety and pain. And we've seen that time and time again in our research. We've seen it in other research studies. And so now I think I could be a much more vocal uh, um, uh, uh, sort of uh, um, megaphone, if you will, for that fact in a way that I couldn't have done while I was immersed in the research studies in academia. And beyond that, I think I have much more time on my hands to be able to push and pursue some of these other goals like the, the Float Research Collective. And so, you know, to me, this, this is really a, a great moment, in fact, for me to, to double down and, and, and try to focus on the ways that I could really benefit the industry. So then is now a good time um, to ask if you could explain the Float Research Collective a little bit more? Especially for, there might be new people out there and for people who would be willing to be a part of that collective, um, I bet this would be pretty exciting. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in 2019, the, the way I described this at the conference was this is a moonshot. This was a moonshot for the whole float industry. And there's a bunch of different aspects of the collective, and you know, we could get into the different aspects, but you know, one of the most exciting parts for me is every day around the country and around the world, Thousands and thousands of people are floating. If you have over 900 centers and each of those centers has multiple float tanks, you have thousands of people floating every day. And that's a wealth of data. That's way bigger than I could have ever done at my two tank 
float clinic in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And it allows you to ask questions at a much larger scale. Imagine if even, you know, 10% of those float centers out there decided they wanted to be part of a research study and contribute to the science of floating. And now every day we have hundreds of data points coming in where float centers could ask their clients to respond to simple questionnaires about their stress levels, their anxiety levels, their pain levels, their mood. And just using a simple iPad or some sort of tablet, have people answer questions pre and post float. And all of that data would then go into a central repository that could be analyzed and published upon, not just for the industry, but for the entire scientific and medical community. And so I've been really sort of working hard on figuring out how do we do this? How do we enact the ability to do float research on such a large scale? And it turns out in this age of modern times with ubiquitous you know, technology and cloud computing, this is feasible. For the first time, this sort of research is feasible. And part of you know, the Float Research Collective, is to unite all the float centers that want to get involved in this and want to contribute to this. And so that's really one of the, the exciting goals, is to try to do research at a much larger scale. I mean, how, how do you guys feel about that? Oh, I mean, are, how many times have you heard people say, I want to be involved? Mm. Is there anything we can do to help? Mm. Um, you know, I think people are rogue doing experiments already, right? I mean, I know, Justin, when we opened in 2016, which is five years ago now, I can't believe that. Um, I had my own little, you know, very unscientific questionnaire. And we we tried to even measure people's sleep patterns with their Fitbits at the time, right? Like we didn't even have the technology we have today. So I think people are going to be signing up in droves for this. I just think, you know, given parameters and guidelines and you know strict communication procedures you'll you'll have a wealth of, of data and that's very exciting you know can i ask you you know one of the things that, that comes up for me is that we had uh, seemingly an attempt of that a few years ago um where we were trying to collect data and it didn't didn't pan out um there was some stuff that you know we weren't collecting information the proper way or wasn't set up properly to collect information and I think maybe keep it anonymous, something to that effect. Uh, I, I don't quite remember. Um, You're talking about the fibromyalgia how, project. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How is this different from that? And what have you learned from that? You know, I think the biggest lesson we learned from the fibromyalgia flow project is twofold. One is it's doable. You know, we, we had over 100 fibromyalgia patients internationally float 10 times each. That's a, a tremendous number of float sessions in a population that is hard to reach. And this was an international collaboration. So I think if anything, it showed us that this sort of study is possible, it's feasible, it's doable. But at the same time, they didn't dot their I's and cross their T's. One of the most important things you need to do in any research study is get approval from an institutional review board, an IRB. And part of that is with every participant, you need to get what's known as an informed consent, where the participant who's participating in the research consents to the study. And 
both the IRB and the informed consent were lacking in this project. It was more of an industry-wide float study. They were giving away these sessions, you know, I think mostly for free or at a reduced price. And so, you know, there was no adverse events. There was no uh, safety issues that um, we had to be concerned about, uh, luckily. But at the same time, in order to get research published, in order to get the scientific community to take this seriously, in order to get the data out there, you needed to do these steps and they weren't undertaken. And so part of what I'm trying to do with the Float Research Collective is make absolutely sure that whatever data we collect could then be disseminated through scientific publications, through the research and medical community. And do it in a way that's completely proper, completely ethical, and um, following all the, the, the standard protocols. And so to me, this is, you know, I think an important learning lesson, actually, for the whole industry. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about more, what, what does the Float Research Collective mean to you? Is it, is it simply uh, creating something similar to the fibromyalgia flotation project, where everybody's uh, sending in data? Um, is it bigger? Um, I mean, what what's going on behind the scenes with it? What's its aim exactly? Is it an organization? Like, what do you visualize? So this this is actually something where I could use the community's help. I'm I'm getting into uncharted waters um, here, and part of that is because what I'd like to do is set the Float Research Collective up as a nonprofit, a five hundred one c three. And there's a lot of paperwork that goes into a 501c3. And there's a lot of logistics in order to make this a true nonprofit. And that's important to me. And so anyone who's out there that understands these logistics, please reach out to me. Um, I'm in the process right now of trying to establish the 501c3. And this is going to be an important endeavor because once we have the nonprofit status, what we could then do is raise money for this collective. And the money's going to be a multi-purpose uh, uh, sort of, uh, of, um, of covering a lot of different projects. One is the one we just discussed, which is how do we enact a, a way to do research with the flow community? And it could be very dynamic, Dylan. You know, it doesn't have to be just on fibromyalgia. It doesn't have to just be on anxiety. It doesn't have to be on any one thing in particular. Once you have a collection of float centers who are following the proper IRB protocol and doing the research the way we want, and they have the tablets or iPads there, we could have a lot of questions that come up. It could be related to what Gloria brought up, related to insomnia, for example. It could be related to an issue that float centers are recognizing floating could help with, but we've just never studied it before, and we could start shooting out questions into the cloud and telling these float centers, start collecting these data on your floaters. And let's figure out if it's, if it's you know, a, a low-hanging fruit that's worth pursuing in greater detail. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, there's going to be limitations to what type of research we could do off the float centers across the world. It, it, there's just going to be, you know, you know basically self-report, pre-post type surveys. That's, that's going to be a limitation. So another goal of the Float Research Collective is to raise money to do more detailed clinical float studies. 
you know, something I've wanted to do, and I've been speaking about this for ages, I think I even spoke about this at the 2019 float conference, is I think we should compare floating to the gold standard treatments for anxiety and pain. You know, right now, if you go to a doctor and say, Doc, my mind's racing all the time. I'm having trouble sleeping at night. I, 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 I'm just anxious. I need something to take off the edge. There's a good chance they're going to prescribe you a benzodiazepine. Mm. And benzos are extremely addictive. In fact, there's some people who think that benzos are going to be the next opiate crisis. And there's a ton of physiological withdrawal. There's a ton of overdoses that happen with benzos. But they work very effectively in reducing anxiety. That's why they're so addictive. And what would happen? What do you guys think would happen? If we compared in a very systematic, head-to-head way, floating versus a benzo. I could tell you because I work with patients who actually did take benzodiazepines for their anxiety. And know what they told me? They thought floating was better. They thought it was more effective. It left them more clear-headed, clear-minded. They weren't zombified like they are with a sedated benzodiazepine. And they thought the anxiety reduction was just as effective. And if anything, it lasts longer. Most benzos, you know, you take like a Xanax or a, a Nativan, about four hours after you take it, you start feeling the anxiety again. It lasts about four hours, maybe eight hours. We actually have data to show in these anxious patients that the anti-anxiety effects of floating are still there 24 hours later. So I think if we had a head-to-head study of floating versus a benzo, floating would win. Mm -hmm. And to me, this is so exciting. You know, imagine being able to set up a study like that where we could do that in a very systematic way and show doctors that before they go ahead and prescribe this highly addictive pill, here's a completely non-pharmacological way of getting the same exact benefit. Is that a real, like, is that something a research center could actually do, a side-by-side study like that? I think that would have to be done, you know, at a proper clinic or a proper institute uh, or university that was studying floating. You know, one of my goals here on Maui is to open up a float clinic where we could actually do that sort of research and work with actual patients (laughs) since I have the ability to work with patients. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. to me, this is another goal of the Float Research Collective is to be able to raise money to do the sort of research studies that could really advance the, the whole float industry into a totally new terrain where doctors, instead of prescribing these highly addictive drugs, could suddenly prescribe a totally natural intervention that could be just as beneficial, but not come with all these horrible side effects. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's something that that comes up for me is so I, I remember years ago just thinking that float research was going to be picking back up again was so exciting, and then uh, research papers years later were, were then being published, and it was it's cool and it's great to be able to use in our marketing and everything. And it's great to know, you know, to have our anecdotal experiences be validated through research papers. But I'm curious, like where does the breakthrough happen where it's this difference between just 
here's another paper showing the positive effects, but then like there's not this like change, you know, this big momentous kind of breakthrough in how people perceive not not just floating but mental wellness. Um, and I think that's what you're kind of talking about, if I'm not wrong. And when does that happen? Is and is that what you're talking about? <laughs> that's exactly what I'm talking about, Dylan. Because essentially, what we need to prove to Western medicine, to prove to health insurance companies that are reimbursing for things, mm-hmm. is what's known as an RCT, a randomized controlled trial. Mm-hmm. You know, so much of what people often say to me in the medical field about floating is, "This is all placebo. This is all oh, people wow. just." expecting they're going to feel better. They go into float and they feel better. But if you set up a proper RCT, you could randomize people to float. You could randomize people to go take a a very active uh, pill like a benzodiazepine. Or you could even imagine if you're dealing with chronic pain patients or even acute pain patients, an opioid. You could do the same sort of study with floating versus Oxycontin. You totally could do this. And the idea is that if you do this in a proper randomized fashion and you could show that floating is doing something above and beyond what these already known interventions are doing, you know, opioids, benzodiazepines, they've all been proven to beat the placebo. Far and away, there's been tons of of RCTs to show this. And that's why health insurers reimburse for it. That's why doctors prescribe them. If we could show that floating could induce the same amount of anxiety reduction or the same amount of pain reduction as these gold standard interventions, for the first time, doctors could say, okay, I now recognize this is not just a placebo effect. This is not just people thinking floating is going to help me. This intervention actually does affect these important clinical variables. And so to me, these studies are necessary because they haven't been done before. Mm -hmm. And it provides a way to actually prove to the medical community that what's happening in a float is not just a state of mind. Mm -hmm. It's an entire change in the nervous system and how that nervous system interacts with the world. And if we could prove that, if we could prove that beyond a reasonable doubt using a rigorous RCT, I think you're going to start seeing health insurers reimbursed for floating. I think you're going to start seeing doctors bringing out their prescription pad and instead of saying, here's your Oxycontin or here's your Xanax, hey, here's 12 float sessions down the block. And that's exciting. You know, that to me is the next iteration of floating. I mean, that gets me jazzed. (laughs) That gets my blood pumping for sure. I my. If and I know I Kim has a question too, but if I can, sorry Kim, um, why not let um, or maybe not why not, but can that be Dr. Saib Kolsa's next step? Is that the natural next evolution of the float research that's happening at Liber? It, it could be. We'll have to see. You know, I think a lot of it is the, the sort of studies that um, are near and dear to Dr. Kolsa's heart. He has to pursue his passion. For me, this is my passion. I, I am sick and tired of what is happening in psychiatry right now. I'm just going to say it. We're, we're medicating people's problems away. And these medications come with a host of side effects. I can't tell you how many patients, how many close family members, how many people I know 
who are struggling to get off of these medications, who are just in horrible physiological withdrawal when they try to stop their benzo or when they try to stop their opioid. And I could tell you that if the doctor had told those same patients the moment they got their prescription that, yes, this might reduce your anxiety or, yes, this might reduce your pain, but guess what? You're going to be addicted for the rest of your life. They would not have chosen this path. They would have gladly taken the non-pharmacological route of floating had that been offered to them. And the fact that we have something that could provide the same anxiolytic, the same analgesic effect potentially as these pills gives me so much hope, you guys. It's the first time, as a scientist who's immersed in this field, it's the first time I've seen a non-pharmacological route towards reducing anxiety and pain at the same level as these gold standard pharmaceuticals. There's just nothing else out there that could do it like that and nothing that could do it as rapidly as, and as effective as floating. And so to me, this is, this is such an exciting moment. You know, here we're sitting on what I would say is a gold mine. These drugs make billions of dollars a year. They're totally addictive. My God, what would happen if people were floating instead of using these drugs? How much better would our society be? You know, just to make this as concrete as possible, the CDC a few weeks ago released the statistics for 2020 overdoses. Take a guess how many people died in America last year from overdosing on these drugs. I couldn't venture a guess. You ready for this? 80,000. This beat every prior year before this. And as soon as the pandemic hit in April and May, overdoses skyrocketed. These are not safe drugs that people should be taking. There's much safer routes towards reducing anxiety and pain. And I think floating is one of those. Oh, my goodness. This is so good. And uh, I got to say, this episode recording went on way longer than we anticipated. We had another show planned to record the same night, and we were just so into this that we had to keep recording. So I hope you enjoyed part one. We're going to play part two for you next week. And in the meantime, I just want to thank you for listening. I want to thank our Patreon subscribers and thanks to Mindful.Solutions for what they're doing for all the float centers, subscribing with them to help fulfill all of their um, social media needs. I truly, 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 truly appreciate Kim and what she's doing with Mindful.Solutions. And thanks so much to Helmbot. Thanks so much to Isopod. And a huge mega shout out to Olga, who is now producing our show making sure that we get awesome guests like Justin on. So thank you, Olga. And again, thanks for listening. We'll get to part two next week. We'll see you next week.